Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hash on Coindesk TV. We are here to have some fun with you on a Wednesday. I'm Jensen Assey. We got Christy Harkin and Adam B. Levine on the show this morning. Adam, I know you never start us off with a fun story, but but here we go. You're here solely for the news, and I appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know. I actually think this one's kind of a fun story. So today we're kicking things off with an interesting development in the world of central bank digital currencies, better known as CBDCs. According to the Iranian Chamber of Commerce, Industries, Mines, and Agriculture, the sanctioned nation of Iran will be launching a pilot project behind a so-called crypto real starting tomorrow. According to news first published on the 12th of this month, the central bank says the project is intended for use in micropayments to improve financial inclusion, to add programmability to the national currency, with the intention of essentially creating a nationally operated stable coin you can think of, as opposed to creating something fully decentralized in the token vein, kind of like Bitcoin. And it's not mentioned in this article, but it does seem obvious, I guess, to anyone paying attention, that Iran would very much like to trade with partners using a token like this, since they still do have trading partners in Europe who they do business with, but who, as a result of being locked out of the US-led financial system, have had to resort to doing things like literally shipping gold and other stuff like that, which is a lot less efficient than using something like this. So I don't think this is a terrible story. I, I like to see people, again, trying to find ways to, to survive. You know, when the U.S. government wants to get you down, even if it's for a really good reason. Jen, what do you think here? You want to join me? Sure. I'm going to tell you why this story bummed me out a little bit. Really? I think if we look at what's, yeah, I, if, I think if we look at what's going on in Iran right now, the country is in political turmoil. And every time I think about a CBDC, my mind goes to privacy. And so when I think about a CBDC being launched in the current state of Iran, it makes me really worried. It makes me feel like anyone who speaks out against the regime in power could potentially not have access to their finances. And when I read the story, I saw that they're calling it a, a crypto real. And I feel like that's a little bit sneaky. I feel like, you know, if you're a citizen of Iran and you're looking for an alternative, maybe you're looking for crypto and you, you stumble upon the crypto real. 
and you end up with something that is not actually solving the problem you had to begin with. And so that's why I was bummed out when I read the story, Adam. But Christy, maybe you have a little bit more of a positive take. No, I really don't. In fact, I I was feeling exactly the same as you, Jen. I was there with you. Everything is about kind of alternatives and choices. There's kind of the internal situation in Iran, and then there's also the external situation in Iran. The internal situation in Iran is that as a country, it's largely been undergoing hyperinflation for the last number of years as a result of being locked out of the U.S.-led financial system. And so that means that although the turmoil is bad, and it's, again, an authoritarian regime, essentially, who is cracking down on their people, a lot of the reason why those people are so unhappy and why the situation is so bad is because of the sanctions and because of sort of basically taking a country that was until kind of the modern era a very important country and a very important country from an economic sense um, and a trading sense and locking them out of everything and then kind of just sitting by people suffer, hoping that that suffering of their people will then bring them to the change of the government that the U.S. government doesn't like. The U.S. government has a long history of doing stuff in Iran. This is not a new story. This is only the latest sort of iteration of it. So it's important to take that into kind of context when we're thinking about this. But to your point, yeah, I mean, whenever we're talking about central bank digital currencies, I just take it as a given at this point that it's worse than neutral systems. But in some ways, it does have advantages, especially if it allows you to kind of route around the damage when you're kicked out of, for example, the global financial system, which then causes hyperinflation within your country. But your point is very well made. Christy, are you back with us? I think the issue is that we can't hear Christy, but the audience can hear Christy. And so while we sort that out on on the back end, Christy, I'm sorry, we're going to get that sorted out. Adam, I will respond back to you. I think your points are very valid. I'm focusing mainly on women in Iran under authoritarian regime. You know, women have so long traditionally been locked out of financial systems all over the world. And I see this as just another weapon to take maybe the little bit of power that women in in the country have away. You know, access to finances allow people to escape situations that you wouldn't be able to escape if you didn't have access to finances. And if money is programmable, I think that it makes it a little bit more difficult, especially in countries like this. And so I think your point is very well made uh, when it comes to international relations and hyperinflation. But privacy is just, you know, it's always top of mind when we talk about CBDCs for me. Christy, are you back with us? I am still here. You can hear. Yay. So what I was going to just quickly add in here when I was with Jen on this of being a little freaked out by the, uh, not freaked out, but, you know, disappointed, shall we say, for exactly the reasons that Jen was mentioning. And as a larger, broader implication, it will kind of be, in a way, a bit of a roadmap for other countries who want to do the same thing and test it out even further. I mean, it's not like China's not already well on the way, but I think that we're normalizing it. And the more countries we have that are using CBDCs, the more that there are, the more normal it will become. And, uh, you know, we've had some issues with our banking systems just here where I am uh, in Toronto, where all of a sudden things shut down, payment systems stopped working because of a bug in an upgrade, and nobody could use digital money. Nobody could use their bank cards. People couldn't use their credit cards. The whole system was down, and all we could use was cash. The economy ground to a halt for like 24 hours, and I think that should have been a wake-up call that maybe we don't want to put everything online that way. And maybe we do still need cash for certain things. 
And I think that the more that we see this happening around the world, the less in touch we are going to be with where our funds actually are and how much control we have over them. Yeah, I think that's a really well-made point. When I think about these types of systems, what I'm thinking about is adding more options for people. So it's not to say that it's not to say that central bank digital currencies should or are even well suited to replace things like cash. It's to say that it's better if people have more options because then we can pick between the options, figure out what's best in our particular situation, and then, you know, again, use whichever one is right in that particular moment. So as I think again, as, to the ex- as long as there are options, exactly. I mean, that's, that's the point of all of this stuff. That's kind of the reason why I became interested in cryptocurrency in the first place was because lacking options, people take what they're given. But if you have options, then people will pick the thing that's best in their situation. And I think that that's one of the most powerful sorts of expressions of what's called intelligence at the edges of the network, right? Rather than sort of the central, hey, this is the one solution, everybody has to use it. And as a result, you know, like 60% of people are poorly served by it uh, at any given time. But we can move on. All right, let's move on to some regulatory news here. The European Union has finalized the text for its landmark markets in crypto assets legislation. So the text is still officially open to comment, but sources told Coindesk that it is essentially finalized. The leaked draft of the bill urges EU regulators to take a substance over form approach to the law, which could see new laws applied to NFTs. So my understanding of of substance over form, this urges enforcers to not just look at legal form, but to look at the substance of of the project and look at what's really going on in the project and then see how that pertains back to legislation that's been written. Christy, I'm going to pass it off to you first. What do you think this means for regulation in NFTs, not only in the EU, but in other jurisdictions that are also kind of trying to come to terms with what's going on in the industry? Well, I think that whole substance versus form is kind of epitomized by the way that they're looking at treating NFTs. They're like, NFTs, fine, whatever. It's when you start fractionalizing the NFTs that they start to look like traditional securities. And I think that that actually is a good distinction to make. So an NFT is like a token that is a one of and no one else can, no one can duplicate it. No one else can have it. It's just its own thing. It's a non-fungible token. Once you start to create mini tokens that represent the larger token and you start selling those mini tokens off and on the understanding that they are going to have some sort of value related to the whole token, then you start to sort of tread on shaky ground in terms of securities. And I think that the fact that they're they're acknowledging that there's a difference and not just going, ah, NFTs, and saying, you know, it's only once you start messing with it that we're going to start querying things. I think that actually is a good exemplar of the substance and form and intention of what the thing is. Adam? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways that I look at this. First off, I think we can say that this is a good thing because it will provide meaningful clarity, a, you know, a licensing scheme that stretches across many, many countries and which in some ways will make these markets more accessible because instead of having to apply in each individual jurisdiction, you'll really just have to have this one sort of overarching set of permissions. I think the other way that you can look at it, though, is that this will probably slow down innovation because one of the reasons why it's good to have a really kind of patchwork quilt of regulations about these types of things is because that means that people go to wherever sort of the most permissive uh, environment is and they build stuff there that they couldn't build in the more heavily regulated environments. So on the one side, it's a good thing. On the other side, it's a bad thing. And then as far as NFTs are concerned, 
You know, what's funny about it is that NFTs, going back to the kind of historical origin of them, came out of sort of the understanding that, oh, hey, actually fungible tokens might be securities under some definitions. So then we came to this idea of, well, if you have non-fungible tokens, they can't trade like, like a fungible token, which means that it's different from that. But if you look at, you know, the historical example of stock certificates, stock certificates are non-fungible tokens, where each one represents a certain number of shares within a particular entity or organization, whatever. So they are, by definition, you can think about uh, stock certificates as kind of a form of primitive NFT, which is very much a security. So the distinction is largely without a difference once you, you kind of get down to it. But it really comes down to, again, what are people using? And more importantly, what are the people saying about them? If you're saying buy this because it's going to gain value because my team is going to do a thing, that's pretty much a security. But so again, it's, it's a little more complicated than just NFT versus not. And the, uh, the fractionalization distinction is also really important because uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with lawyers over the, you know, a couple of years ago talking about this. And you can take something that's like very much not a security and very much not equity, and you can turn it into equity simply by taking this sort of route. So it's definitely something where you need to appreciate the nuances if you're going to build these types of, of solutions. And, you know, a lot of people don't, but I think an increasing number of people do. And net net, I'm glad to see more stability and kind of clarity coming into the markets. To you, Jen. Yeah, I, I agree with you when you say perhaps it may be stunting innovation in some way. But I also agree with you, Christy, when you say that this is actually written very clear. I think there's very clear direction. I think it's more clear than anything we've seen come out of the US when it comes to NFTs or the fractionalization of NFTs. And I think that regulators around the world are probably going to look at it and, and almost like copy the homework a little bit and start, start saying, I think we can apply this to our jurisdiction. It makes a lot of sense. I want to add one little tidbit here. So under this framework, uh, it requires issuers of crypto assets to publish white papers containing technical roadmaps for platforms to register with the regulators and for stablecoin issuers to hold capital that is prudently managed. I think that if many of the NFT projects we see popping up and, and rugging investors, you know, we all so often talk about protecting investors, protecting users, had all of these things in place maybe there would be a little bit more information out there for those investors. Christy, I'll give it to you. I saw your hand up for a last thought on this. That was literally the point I was going to make. <laughs> you know, that's Us exactly Canadians on answer. the same page. We are just in sync today, Jen. <laughs> on the same page. Coindesk has a new event. It's called Ideas, the Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. It facilitates capital flow and market growth by connecting the digital economy with traditional finance. Join us for a 360 investment experience where you can source, invest, and secure the next big deal in digital assets, all in one place. Use code HASH20 for 20% off a general pass. Register today at coinest.com forward slash ideas. So we've been hearing a lot about, well, some people have been hearing a lot about Cardano and how there's another uh, upgrade happening. And I, I think that we should start off by saying that often Cardano is the, the boy who cries wolf with their upgrades, and they're not usually that important, and they're little, and they're incremental. But in this case, there's actually, it's kind of a bigger deal. So this is the vassal hard fork to Cardano. And a hard fork is a non-backwards compatible change to the platform. And what we're doing in this case with Cardano is upgrading its script. So the language is written in Haskell, but there's this script called Plutus, and it is going to be updated to Plutus version two. 
And what it's going to do is enable the smart contracts that Cardano keeps touting it's going to be doing, or it can do, but not many people are doing, and it's a little clunky, but it's getting there. So it will upgrade the way that the smart contracts are written. It's going to make it more efficient. And all of this is supposed to happen tomorrow. It's going to kick in tomorrow and people are super excited about it. Not to say that the price has reflected that people are super excited about it because it's kind of still going down just like the rest of crypto. But yeah, so it's it's a conversation that is out there among the Cardano heads and people who are into ADA, its native token. So Cardano has always billed itself as being a smart contract platform, but in the spirit of a lot of crypto projects, it moves slowly and it moves super slowly. <laughs> but in order, so in order to kind of keep the narrative going, it likes to tout these big projects or at least big upgrades. But this one actually seems to be a biggish one. So uh, Adam, I know how much you love talking about Cardano. Go ahead. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of these projects that got kicked off sort of in the 2017-2018 post-ICO era really are still kind of struggling to find their niche in all of this, right? And a big question was, well, you know, a big part of our value proposition is that we're using proof of stake or we're using something other than proof of work. And now with Ethereum having made the jump to that, again, sort of those, those factors diminish a little bit. So again, I think for people who are big fans of the Cardano project, this is probably a big deal, much anticipated. I think that for the rest of us, again, like there's a lot of people out there uh, who are just kind of waiting to see what is this environment really going to look like. And that's not really something that's dependent on upgrades. I think we've seen that thoroughly with Ethereum, you know, pulling off what was a very complex upgrade, uh, you know, very much so, uh, while at the same time that did not have any sort of positive impact on its price. I think we saw a $50 bump or something like that. As it stands right now, like there's reality over here and then there's macroeconomic concerns over here. And macroeconomic concerns are driving the car, at least for the time being. Jen? Yeah, I don't really got much on this. Christy, I, I want to hear from you, though. Like for me, who is not like, super up to date on what's happening with Cardano, what's the main thing I should take away from this? Like what should the audience, if we zoom out of the story, really take away from the story? Well, this is a very technical upgrade. So there isn't really a lot that users are going to take away from this other than the fact that Cardano has taken another step forward on its roadmap. I mean, if you want to get super technical, it's going to allow inputs and uh, UTXOs, those are unspent transaction outputs, to be used in scripting contracts without spending them. What does that mean? It's just a thing that is going to be happening. And it's not something that the average person is going to really have to deal with. I think the interesting thing here also, though, is kind of what Adam was alluding to with Ethereum switching to proof of stake. I think there are going to be platforms that are the so-called, I mean, Cardano gets lumped in with the Ethereum killer platforms because it uses what's called a delegated proof of stake system. So it's a kind of, it's a proof of stake model and it has always been doing that. So, so far, many of the Ethereum killers have been proof of stake based and they've been touting, you know, their, all of the advantages of proof of stake over Ethereum. Well, now Ethereum's proof of stake. So what's the value proposition here? Cardano does smart contracts. Well, hey, so does Ethereum on proof of stake now. So I think that what's going to be interesting is as they do their little incremental uh, progress reports, is it really going to have a market? Adam? Yeah, one final thought. So Cardano, one of the things that's unique about it is that it uses a UTXO model, as you said, or unspent transaction output. 
That means that in some ways it works a lot like Bitcoins. Let me just talk about that for a second because it is somewhat important to understand in how these different blockchains work. So when you're looking at something like Bitcoin, what you're basically looking at when you're sending Bitcoin is you're combining together all these little pieces of Bitcoin. So you might have a piece of Bitcoin that's worth 0.1 of a Bitcoin and then another piece that's worth you know, a whole Bitcoin. And what you're trying to send is 0.15 of a Bitcoin. And so what it'll do is it'll take that one Bitcoin that you have and it'll cut it into two pieces, one that sends the amount to whoever by creating effectively a bill that's worth one point, uh, you know, 0.15. And then uh, it'll take the rest of it and it'll give it back to you and change minus whatever the fees are to send it on the network. That's different in a lot of ways than how something like Ethereum works. Ethereum works a lot more like a checkbook, uh, you know, where you're writing a check and then the blockchain is your bank. So that means that in some ways, it's actually easier to track transactions and it allows you to do some pretty cool things also, like create colored coins and other types of scenarios using a UTXO-based model that you can't get away with with an Ethereum account-based system. So that, that's one of kind of, I think, the most important differentiators when it comes to uh, Cardano. And when you're talking about using smart contracts in a situation like that, there are some interesting implications from that. So we definitely could see something happen with this. But as with so many of these projects, again, they're just so early in their life cycle, relatively speaking, you know, that we're still kind of all just speculating on what are these things going to be. So this is an important step towards sort of that eventual vision because smart contracts are important. But we need to see a lot more before we can declare a winner here. I think it's time to move on. Oh, yeah. All right. We're, we're going to leave Cardano right there and pick up our last story of the day with Funko. So Funko and Warner Brothers have teamed up on a new project with DC Comics. So they're releasing a DC Comics NFT. This digital release is a marriage between the physical comic book and the digital version, and it's going to be sold exclusively through Walmart. So a lot of mainstream brands in this headline, which I think is exciting for the NFT space. Adam, I'm going to kick it up to you first. Are you excited about this? So I'm excited about the continued normalization of all of these processes and all of these types of things. And as you said, there's a lot of big name brands involved with this. I think it's relevant because of that. I'll be really curious to see how well this sells. I think that's going to be sort of the big question for me is not, is it available, but is it popular? If it's popular, then that is interesting. And again, you know, it's like there's so much in kind of the world of NFTs and the world of cryptocurrency more broadly. Uh, is about trying to figure out how do you reverse engineer Pokemon cards, right? Not the creation of a card, but the creation of a popular phenomenon, right? And so attaching something like these new technologies to older, already popular you know, intellectual property is interesting because it means, hey, maybe you can revive something. Maybe, you can, maybe it's a force multiplier, not just a new way to monetize this, but something that will actually help it sort of make the jump into the digital age. So that's what I see when I'm looking at something like this. I don't know if I'm skeptical or not in terms of whether it'll be successful, but I'll be anxious to see. <laughs> yeah. Christy, what do you think? Well, uh, I am in a house that is full of Funko Pops. Like, we have so many. We have so many. And, and we have many Marvel Funko Pops as well. And we also have, you know, collectible sports cards. And we have, com I have, we have racks and racks of comic books. So I'm curious to see if any of my Funko comic book Marvel collecting family gets interested in this, considering they have, you know, a crypto person in the house as well. I'm very curious to see if they are interested or not. So far, not. <laughs> I have to admit, people are like, eh, whatever, I want the comic book in my hand. I want the Funko Pop on my shelf. I, on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, but you don't have to dust an NFT. 
and I'm tired of dusting the Funko Pops. So <laughs> I would like to see whether or not that is, it, it comes into play at all. Like having it in a wallet means anything to anybody. But I think it's a nice little add-on and maybe it will be become popular. But I can tell you that so far of the seven people that I hang out with who are into the things, not so much. Well, I want to know, is there a Funko Pop close by that we can see right now? No, no, not in my office. I don't have any Funkos. My daughter, Darn my it. kids, my husband, my husband has tons of them. He had an It Funko Pop in her bedroom. And I was like, no, that's not going to be allowed in here. <laughs> <laughs> and this okay so next time you come on the show bring your funko pop we could chat I about it the second thing the second thing is is this comes with a physical version of of the comic book cover so you still get to have that physical asset and yes. potentially you know future proof your collection with that nft and so there's going to be thirty thousand of them launched at at the beginning of october exclusively in walmart like you, Adam, I was thinking, like, are we going to see people lining up, going to different Walmarts, trying to get this? I don't know. I guess we'll see in October. But I, I remain optimistic, as always, on every NFT piece of news we have on this I just, show. I want to know if people are actually going to bother to claim their NFT. That's what I'm curious about. They'll go, they might get the comic book, but will they bother to claim the NFT? As I was reading through this, I thought, this actually needs something from the traditional marketing space. Like, I think this really needs an in-person brand ambassador standing in the aisle. When you purchase this, it talks you through how to get that NFT. I think you're right, Christy. That is going to be a hurdle. You get the, the physical copy, but you know, a lot of people don't know how to go home, set up a wallet, and then claim that NFT. I think we need brand ambassadors. Adam, what do you think? Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, again, uh, like as an educational opportunity, like these types of engagements are important moments. And to Christy's point, again, like that really is the question is like, to the extent that these are successful, is that even about the NFT or is the NFT basically just something, you know, that you get for free in your cereal box, right? Uh, you know, when that used to happen. I, I don't know if it matters, though. I don't know if I care. Again, like for me, this is all about on the one side macro, on the other side normalization. And the normalization that comes from simply the inclusion of this as a concept within these things, I think is something that even if it takes, you know, a year or two years uh, for that to become just normal and people to be like, oh, hey, I got this thing. So I guess I should also do this thing on the Internet uh, with it. Like that seems like that's the natural sort of trajectory for the thing. But I'm, eh, you know, eh. back to you, Jen. All right. Well. You know, no new takes here. Adam is cautiously skeptic and I am cautiously optimistic. And Christy has a bunch of the things in her house already. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Thank you so much for watching the hash today on Coindesk TV on this fine Wednesday and for listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jensen Assey, Christy Harkin, and Adam B. Levine were my co-hosts today. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. Okay. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. <laughs>